Though previously believed to be the best solution for reducing the risk of restenosis, studies now show that drug-eluting stents, or DES, may actually be more prone to late, sudden occlusion of the coronary arteries. As the cardiology community had enthusiastically embraced DES for the past five years, we are now grappling with the long-term implications and this new evidence that DES may not be superior to bare metal stents in producing favorable long-term outcomes. As DES may inhibit the growth of the normal tissue that eventually coats the stents, preventing clotting, the risk of sudden clotting is now thought to persist, eventually leading to prolonged drug therapy for patients with DES. So has this technological advancement helped or hindered our ability to treat coronary artery disease? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today to dive into the DES debate is Dr. Roxana Mehran, Director of Clinical Research and the Data Coordinating and Analysis Center at the Cardiovascular Research Foundation and Associate Professor of Medicine at Columbia University Medical Center. Dr. Mehran has a long-standing research interest in cardiovascular topics, including intravascular ultrasound, angioplasty, coronary stenting, and has written over 200 publications, as well as a chapter, Coronary Heart Disease, in the book Principles and Practice of Interventional Cardiology. Dr. Mehran, welcome to the show. Thank you. Can you please help us a little bit and take us through the evolution of stent technology? How did we get from bare stents to DES stents? Well, I think that's a very, very good question, a very long answer to this question, because this truly is going through the history of interventional cardiology or cardiovascular interventions and treatments as we know it. Perhaps over the years, in 1976, when Andreas Grunzik, the father of angioplasty, for the very first time dilated a coronary artery in, in man, uh, we began to understand that the uh, percutaneous approach of dilating coronary arteries is feasible and possible in humans. And this really uh, moved the, the field to really to the next level. Dr. Grunzik and then many other, I would say, grandfathers or, or pioneers in the field of interventional cardiology took this to the next level in uh, performing angioplasty in not just single-vessel disease, but also in multi-vessel disease. Jeff Hartzler at the Mid-America Heart Institute was one of the uh, leaders of this. And we've always known that angioplasty with balloon alone had uh, a major limitation in that there was a high rate of acute occlusion, meaning a closure of the artery acutely immediately after the procedure or during the procedure. And many, many nights we would have to come in in the middle of the night and uh, take care of these occlusions or dissections because the mechanism by which balloon angioplasty dilates arteries is through dissecting the plaque. Mm-hmm. It was very early uh, 1990s uh, that the uh, coronary stent, the first coronary stent, the Cook stent, and then um, the Gianturco-Rubin stent, and then, of course, the, the biliary stent, the Johnson & Johnson uh, Palmas-Shatt stents became approved in the United States when this metal cage was really used to dilate the artery and uh, completely abolished the rate of abrupt closure that we were experiencing with PTCA. The other limitation of PTCA in those days was that the recurrence rates, acute recoil, and then recurrence rates up to 40 to 50 percent. With the use of bare metal stents, this really, the abrupt closure and all of those dangers completely went away. 
we were still left with the Achilles heel of uh, PCI procedures, which was restenosis. And restenosis became uh, one of the very important uh, limitations of our procedures, such that 20 to 30 percent of our patients would experience the recurrence or the scar formation within the uh, coronary stent as neointimal proliferation occurred and the stents were uh, blocked again. Can you elaborate a little bit on exactly what's happening at the endothelial level when you do place a bare metal stent? Yeah, and I think that, uh, you know, there's no question that when you place a bare metal stent, you are disrupting the endothelium, you're disrupting, you know, there is uh, what we call vascular injury directly at the site. And we do know that there is smooth muscle cell proliferation and migration, and there is a response to this injury, if you will. And the response can be exaggerated in certain patients like diabetes, those patients who have long lesions, small vessels, etc. We know with bare metal stents that the rate of uh, restenosis is really directly proportional to the, the complexity of the disease, the length of the stents, how long the stents are, etc., and we know the mechanism of instant restenosis with bare metal stents because it's completely due to neointimal proliferation, as I described before. What we now have as a real true revolution in the field is abolishing the entire process of neointimal proliferation and migration with the use of these drug-eluting stents. And if I can go back to your introductory... Sure. Um, Please refute it if you and, would like And I to. would like to refute that, not because I'm an interventional cardiologist, but more importantly, because I'm a clinical trialist at heart, and uh, I don't agree with your conclusion that, yes, there were higher rates of late sudden occlusions, but no real change in death or MI as a whole in the pivotal trials all the way out to five years between patients who received drug-eluting stents versus those who received bare metal stents. I think that's a very, very important consideration and Otherwise, if they did cause more harm than good, our regulatory agencies would never allow such a device to be out there. So I think it's very important that it is underlined that actually drug-eluting stents have made a very, very important impact on reducing or abolishing restenosis altogether. And for those clinicians, physicians, and patients who believe that uh, restenosis is a benign process, I, I have you go back to the days of bare metal stents where we had patients with 20 or so procedures to treat their recurrent instant restenosis. And there were many, many of those. And that disease entity has been abolished. And drug-eluting stents have taken care of that. Now, I'm not saying that the your, I, I do agree with your with your statement that after five years, we do have some evidence that drug-eluting stents have higher rates of late occlusion, very late occlusion beyond a year. But your statement that DES may not be superior to bare metal stents in producing favorable long-term outcomes, I think is, is not a true statement. And in fact, we have ample evidence that the composite endpoint of major adverse cardiac events, which include death, myocardial infarction, and revascularization, completely driven by uh, no need for revascularization in patients with DES has definitely favorable outcome in patients who receive a drug-eluting stent strategy. And I think that's very, very important. I'm wondering if we can prevent late stent thrombosis, obviously with the use of Plavix and or other 
anticoagulants. If we are not able to provide that, what happens with late stent thrombosis and the placement of a DES? Well, you know, that's a very, very important question, and I don't know that we have the answer to those questions based on what we have available to us, and it would be great if we knew the exact cause of late stent thrombosis. You know, it's like anything else. If you know the cause, then you can direct your therapy towards that. There's some evidence that in patients who discontinue their antiplatelet therapy early, they're at a higher rate for DES stent thrombosis, late stent thrombosis. But we also have data from Italy that suggests that even patients on aspirin and Plavix therapy have had some of these occlusions. So I think that we really are unclear. It is for this reason that there are several large registries, including one that is going to be started by Dr. Greg Stone called ADAPT-DES. It's a very large registry of over 10,000 patients in whom patients who receive drug-eluting stents in whom um, platelet, antiplatelet responsiveness, both aspirin and Plavix responsiveness, will be tested in all those patients. And then the risk of thrombosis assessed by looking at biomarkers and and this important responsiveness that there may be certain patients who are just not responding Mm -hmm. to the aspirin and Plavix therapy and they might need like a celastazole therapy on top of aspirin and Plavix. I, I just don't think we have the answer. In my office currently, I do aspirin testing on all my patients that are on aspirin to see if they are actually responding to the aspirin. Well, that's fabulous, Dr. Casco. You're way in front of many of us who don't have this technology and don't use this. I think the technology is there. It's just I, every time I do the test, I lose money on it because the insurance companies don't pay. But mm-hmm. but what I wanted to get at was about 25% of the people that are on aspirin are not responding to the dose they're on. And I would imagine it's very similar with Plavix and Plavix plus aspirin. So would it make sense from an economic standpoint to test everybody who's on aspirin and Plavix so that we don't have to worry about late stent thrombosis. As far as I'm concerned, a single life saved is worth all of that. I think that if we have tools to prevent stent thrombosis and we don't use it, well, then shame on us and shame mm-hmm. on our society and our medical system. Because I do believe that if truly we have evidence that you test someone on aspirin and Plavix and they're not responding, you change their dose, they respond, and they're free of stent thrombosis, then we should be testing everybody and adjusting our therapy accordingly. The problem is we're not really there yet, so we hope to have studies to actually prove this point. I agree with you on that. Did you have a chance to either attend or read what came out of last year's World Congress of Cardiology in Barcelona? Oh, yes. As an interventional cardiologist and someone who runs clinical trials and uh, is a practicing uh, interventionalist, this was obviously a very important sort of time for us to take a look at what came out of there and uh, the subsequent data that was analyzed according to scientific background rather than just looking at what's published in the literature and adding numbers. As you know, what was presented at the Barcelona meeting by Dr. Kamenzide was really not a true reflection of what really had uh, had taken place. He just combined numbers and came up with a um, cardiac death and Q-wave MI combined endpoint. Certain studies should not have been pulled 
There was not enough uh, follow-up. In certain studies, there was only one year. Others, there was two or three years. And you can imagine that the data uh, was not really poolable, but yet it was pooled and presented, and, and it did bring out all of this. I think that whether uh, what was done was right or wrong or scientifically correct or not, which it wasn't, but I think that after review of the data with five-year data with a true meta-analysis performed by independent data centers with independent statisticians outside of the company, Companies, there was evidence, as you suggested, that there was more very late occlusions in patients who had drug-eluting stents. When we say more, we say, we're say we saying five versus zero in the um, serious trials in the cipher and nine versus two in the taxes trials. One of the big glitches to that and the reason why it was great to have the same definitions applied for both of Access and cipher trials was that one of the things that was as part of the protocol is that if you had an occlusion or restenosis and you got treated with something else, then you got taken out of the analysis. So what we call primary versus secondary revascularization. And uh, the academic research consortium had gotten together way before any of this data had come out and had come up with a standardized definition for stent thrombosis. And if those definitions are applied, you no longer see any kind of a difference between a DES strategy versus a BMS strategy. So I think it's important, again, to point that out as well. Well, I want to thank our guest, Dr. Roxana Mehran, who joined us today to discuss the implications of drug-eluting stents. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments or questions or suggestions, please email us at xm at reachmd.com. Let us know what you're thinking, if you're enjoying the shows, if there's anything we can do better to serve you. Thank you for listening. Thank you.